Welcome to Tech Marketer Live, helping you create and capture demand in the enterprise technology market. Now here's your host, Jordy Carswell. All right. Hey, everybody. Jordy here. Happy to have you with us on Tech Marketer Live, a new episode. I'm excited to welcome Joel Klecki. Am I saying that right, Joel? You nailed it. Yeah, you got it. I nailed it. First try. All right. That's awesome. Uh, from Case Study Buddy, the founder of Case Study Buddy. Um, a ton of our clients and listeners are uh, in the B2B space. The case studies are a staple. I thought it'd be really interesting to have a conversation about this with the man, the expert on this front. So I'm happy to have you come on. Thanks very much, Joel. Yeah, I'm excited to, to dig into it all. Awesome. So tell us a little bit uh, just about yourself. First, if you could, please, Joel. Yeah, I mean, my uh, my career trajectory has kind of gone, you know, I, I worked at an agency doing SEO and then went out on my own in 2013 and doing copywriting. And it was through that that I started doing more conversion focused copywriting and landing pages, websites. And it was on the back of a project for WP Engine that someone on their board said, hey, do you do case studies? And I thought, well, not yet, but for you, definitely. And I, I gave it a shot. And it was in doing that project that I kind of realized, hey, there are all kinds of challenges in doing these. They are complicated. They can be really tricky, but the upside is massive. And when I looked around at the market, that well, surely someone's like planted a flag and said, we specialize in this. We're really good at blocking and tackling on all the different areas, all the different disciplines. I came up dry. There was the odd freelancer, but there really wasn't a dedicated team devoted to just solving the problems around this and doing it well and doing it at scale. So just over seven years, almost almost eight years ago, Case Study Buddy was born as a bit of a side project and we've been learning and growing and trying to get better ever since. Awesome. Well, I think that's a great intro to why the need was there and what you you know, saw in the marketplace. So we agree. Uh, we're case study buddy clients ourselves. And so we're, um, you know, excited to learn more about this. So I want to dig right in here about, you know, so what are the elements of a truly effective case study? Not just putting something up on the web, but something really effective. For sure. I, I think at the heart of a really effective story is number one, a focused intention. It's not a kitchen sink story where every impact and everything that was done and every possible aspect of this thing is explored. It's a story, first and foremost, told with intention. It's aligned with a real business or revenue goal for the company telling it, but it's focused on a very particular narrative. I think the other really important thing is these are human stories. Even though we might be going business to business, even though we're talking about enterprise level or organization level or team level solutions, we're still at the heart of this talking about someone who made a decision, evaluated things, had a pain they acutely felt, took a risk because every decision in business has some level of risk, got the outcome and the experience that they wanted. And now we're putting them center stage to talk about that. For us, it's, it's really critical that we capture those human aspects. And that includes things like emotion or uh, consideration stages. We'll often tell stories about, um, you know, we'll try to incorporate the things that went really well. And then also the ways the company pivoted and evolved and worked to satisfy that customer. So I think these are focused stories. They're human stories. And then I think the third piece, the, the third leg of the stool is that they're engineered for the channels and audiences that you're trying to reach. And this one gets missed a lot, but 
one format does not do it all for you. Telling a, a deep dive 1500 word piece is great in some environments for SEO or when you have someone who wants that level of detail. But in other scenarios, you don't have that level of attention, that level of buy-in, even that level of informational need. You're drowning them. You're overwhelming them. That's where something like a one sheet or a video or some other way of expressing that story can carry it further, drive more ROI, appeal to someone in that channel or in that space or, or in that stage of consideration. So focused, human, and then I would say kind of tailored to the channel, you know, audience is broad, but tailored to the, the channel and audience. I think those three things come together to really make stories effective. Awesome. I think um, for us, our biggest challenge in creating case studies was to try and figure out how to tell a story. You know, what was the before and after? Um, and so I imagine you have like a way that you phrase the questions when you're asking the 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 participant so that you can coax that kind of answer out of them. It must be a bit of an art. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's a, a couple of really simple principles that can help anyone conduct a better interview. And, and we've built on them and expanded on them. I think number one is the old infomercial format before, during, after. You're structuring it because your goal is to turn your interviewee into a storyteller. You're not there to interrogate them. You're not there to extract information. You're there to get them to, to tell a story. And so to do that, the, the second pillar is that the key is in the follow-up. It's asking open-ended questions that enable them to tell that story and then active listening in, in such a way that you can respond and you can dig and you can figure out where to press in or, or where to pull back. When we run interviews, what our interviewers, I think, are, are really great at is we try to get some context ahead of time. We want to know from a high level what the story already is. We want to go deep instead of wide. You want to go in again with some intention behind what you're going to ask and how you're going to ask and where you're going to try to lead the conversation. That doesn't mean that you railroad the customer and go in there. You still have to respond to what they say, but you have some idea of where you're trying to take it. And then we really like to ask questions like, what did that mean for you? What did that mean for your boss? What did that mean for your department? What did that make possible for you? Uh, our interviewers also, there, there's kind of a, a phrasing of question that we found to be pretty effective. And, and that is, what made that so fill in the blank? What made that so frustrating? What made that so effective? What made that so compelling? When you ask questions like these, what you're doing is disarming the person. They're going away from thinking, oh, I'm on a stage. I need to have the perfect soundbite. And you're bringing them into this organic kind of conversation where now it's just them talking about what they experienced, how they felt, how they made those decisions. And the gold comes on its own when, when you can take that kind of approach. So yes, you want to be structured. Yes, you want to be intentional, but the key really is in that follow-up, that active listening, and then putting them in a place to be comfortable to share those details just automatically because of the way that you phrase things to them. Interesting. So do you provide the questions ahead of time to the, to the participant, or how does that work usually? It depends on the situation. Um, normally, wherever we can, we try to seed and work with our clients to seed some information so that they know the kinds of things they'll be asked. So particularly one of the big challenges for companies we hear all the time is we can't get metrics. We can't get metrics. We can't get impact statements. Mm -hmm. Well, 
that's because most companies assume that their clients know these things at the drop of a hat and will just show up ready to talk about them. That's rarely the yeah. case. So we try to seed a little bit about here are the specifics of your story we're hoping to dig into. Uh, here are the metrics we'd love for you to come prepared for. But when it comes to the actual interview, it would be pretty rare for us. There are circumstances we do all touch on in a second, but it would be rare for us to send the exhaustive planned question list in advance because we don't want them to show up sounding rehearsed and wooden and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So it's a fine line between helping them prep and, and then kind of giving away the farm. There are cases where either you have to, or it is actually in your best interest to share the question set. And particularly there, when you have high stakes video, so for example, you're going to do an on-location shoot. You want yeah. that person to, ideally you've done a pre-interview and you've discovered some of these. Yeah. You want that person to know and be prepared and, and come ready with sort of uh, what you're going to, to ask them. You still want to, again, leave room for serendipity and emotion and, and those kinds of things. The other way you're more forced into it is when legal or PR get involved. So if, <laughs> if there is a really heavy-handed PR or legal team that's like, we need to know exactly the context and where the bumpers on the bowling alley are and we, we need to advise them, then, then you don't really have a choice. But my advice for companies is give them some specifics in terms of the goal of the story, the metrics you'd like to see. But unless they're explicitly asking for it, don't give them everything. They may find it overwhelming. They may over-prepare. Yeah. Yeah. I could see if it sounds too scripted, it's just not going to have the, especially on the video front, right? Like it's, it's yeah. not going to have the same ring to yeah. it. I get it. Yeah. Everybody so, can tell when they're reading a script, right? <laughs> everybody, everybody knows that. So we, we, you want to steer them away from, from that and make them that, that ties into your previous question too, right? Make them feel confident with the kinds of questions you ask instead of, Oh, I have to script my response. Yeah. And I guess too, through the interview, part of it is making them feel comfortable to share, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I get it. Yeah, no, the wooden answers, you know, we we very much had good success. It was wonderful, would buy again. That's <laughs> not really what you're looking for, quotes-wise. No. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the common mistakes that people make when putting together a case study in your experience? Yeah, I think contrasting what we talked about earlier of being, you know, intentional, you know, focused, human, and intentionally crafted, some of the big mistakes are number one, I think creating these like marketing's pet project. The reality for, for companies is these are a team sport. Marketing might be the champions responsible for kind of driving the initiative ahead, but they will miss opportunities, real opportunities for ROI, for repurposing, for true value by not consulting with sales or customer success or leadership or what have you. So that's a common mistake, maybe not on a story level, but for programs as a whole, this is not just a marketing function. This is an everybody function. And your stories will be better if you kind of have discussions around what are our goals? What gaps in our content are we trying to fill? What formats are going to enable these different teams to do what they need to do? So one mistake is just leaving it totally up to marketing and, and not really making it a dialogue. I think the second thing is, you know, part and parcel with the idea of stories are better when they're catered to channels. But most companies, quite honestly, they tell the story one time one way in one place. They publish it once, they never promote it again. They hope people just stumble across it. 
And so this mentality, and, and the reason that happens often is there's such an effort to get the story in the first place that by the time it goes live, everyone's exhausted and just happy they got <laughs> the logo or got it out there that, that they, they just stop, yeah. right? Um, but yeah. that lack of having like a program or a plan for where you take it, what you do with it, I think that's a, a real big mistake. I think the third thing that I would highlight is uh, really not being strategic again about like the types of stories you tell. I can name 10 different variations of a case study, everything from switcher stories, you know, highlighting people who left a particular competitor for you that can enable some campaigns. You can look at playbooks. How does someone, if it's appropriate for your space, tell a story of how, you know, the recipe, how they leveraged your tool or your, or, or whatever it might be to achieve that result. You can tell stories that are, we call them disambiguator stories, where uh, the classic example I always turn to is there was an industrial um, air filtration company, and they normally sold into warehouses, manufacturing, fiberglass, dust, that type of thing. Well, COVID comes along, and all of a sudden, they realize, you know what, there's a part of our offering we really haven't been pressing into. We, we've got all of this compliance level filtration that we could be selling into places like gyms. People are nervous about coming back to gyms, having this air filtration in place is, is a selling point at this point. Well, to, to sell into those gyms, that's a very different buyer than you know an industrial manufacturer or what have you. So disambiguating how your solution works in that kind of environment and how you appeal to a very different kind of buyer, you can tell that kind of story. You can tell stories uh, that we call skeptic stories that are more focused on someone who almost didn't buy and what ultimately won them over. So being strategic about what goals you want these to support. When you just treat a case study like any old win, like, all right, here we go again, problem, solution, results, it's all the same. You miss opportunities to give these the most utility possible. And then the last, I said the last one was the last, but this really is the last one. The dumbest thing you can do is not involve the customer in a customer success story. It clients, you know, even our clients uh, think sometimes it would be so much easier if we just didn't have to interview them or get there. Like, why can't we just put this together and then either just publish it or then ask to someone off. to be created? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a fast track to number one week stories. Your perspective is never going to be as compelling mm -hmm. as your customers. Number two, you're pissing clients off. But like, if you disclose something by accident, if you make the mistake so many companies make of making your customer look like an idiot, like for some reason, when people start writing these or filming these, uh, they have a tendency to really focus on making the customer look as dumb as possible. So they look as great as possible. That's a real easy oh, way to make sure your story never sees the light of day. So, you know, uh, not including the customer is a death trap. It, it will mean weaker stories, fewer approvals. It's easier in the moment, but it, it's not going to be a long-term path to success. Interesting. Oh, well, this is gold. So I'm curious about this. You mentioned, we went through it very quickly, the three kinds of stories you can tell. So one of them was a switcher, right? So maybe let's talk about that a little bit more. What do, what do you mean by the switcher story and, and how does that look? Yeah. And, and there are, you know, I, I'll, I'll have to pull them up because my memories are, but we've identified over 10 different types, but let, focusing on switcher, okay. a switcher story is so um, let's say that you're in a very competitive space. You're in a very competitive space or you're a newcomer and you have stories of people who used to be on a different solution and they made the choice to come to you. That is a really compelling and really mm -hmm. unique 
story because unlike a, a typical, maybe stereotypical case study, now you have the ability to not only kind of tout your own benefits, but sort of go on the attack. You can use these stories to position yourself against weaknesses in your competition or position yourself to show the advantages you have or the way you serve a particular market better. Uh, like we've told stories, as an example, uh, HubSpot did a push to have stories where uh, they highlighted people who've moved from Salesforce to HubSpot. Big competition. HubSpot is the emerging competitor there as their suite grows in, in functionality and scope. They needed people to know they were a legitimate competitor and also to, to hear firsthand why would people leave kind of the industry standard to go somewhere new. And mm -hmm. those stories in turn can power all kinds of initiatives, remarketing, SEO, cold outreach, you name it. A any campaign geared specifically towards countering that competition, now you've got this killer proof to, to go alongside it. But you only capture that really if you're intentional about not only how you tell that story, but one step back, who you asked to take part in the first place. And, and so mm -hmm. having that goal be clear makes it easier for people to nominate candidates, easier to identify them, easier to make the ask, easier to disambiguate what you might be you know, asking them in their stories. So it's a chain reaction of strategy through to focused asset. Wow. There's more to that than I thought. <laughs> Once you get into it, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, so the switcher, now you mentioned sort of 10, and we won't ask you to list them all off, but what are some other examples? I'm curious on this. Other example of switches or other examples of story types? Or just types of stories, sorry. Yeah, so some of the ones, you know, there's those switcher stories. There's what we call uh, skeptic stories, where again, the bulk of the story focuses actually on the early decision-making process and really lays bare their concerns. And then in the results section, you spend a little bit more time talking about how a solution actually addressed those concerns and overcame those objections. Uh, for software, what's really common, um, well, underutilized, but a common scenario is implementation stories. So often we want to wait till the customers had mm -hmm. some gigantic win with our platform, but a successful implementation is often story enough for people at that phase of consideration where they're going, is this going to take six months to a year? Will my team actually adopt yeah. it? What's going to, you know, what could possibly go wrong? So we've told entire stories just about the experience of implementation. And the wonderful thing is, if you tell those stories, well, hey, if someone goes on the record for that piece, it's a shoe in now to go back to them a year later and say, now we want to update this story and add to it. So there's implementation stories, skeptic stories. We talked about switcher stories, that disambiguator story example, where you're talking about how you fit into a new market. There's playbook stories. A company that does an amazing job of these is Mutiny. If you go to Mutiny HQ, you go to their playbooks, what you're going to see what I love in these stories is it's a it's very customer centric. It's how X client basically uses it's a risk for how they use mutiny to achieve a goal, how they built what they needed to build on the back of mutiny. But then you go into the story and there's this section at the top that's quietly brilliant. And it's what you'll learn. It makes a promise right off the hop in the story, what you're going to learn from the story, and then what you'll need. And it shows kind of these, this is the stack or these are the things you might need. And then when mm -hmm. you go into the story, yes, it's a success story practically laid out as you walk through, this is what they did and it was successful, but it's also this very actionable. By the time you get to the end of that, you know, if, if you're thinking I need to build a similar solution, not only are you convinced that it can work, 
you're also probably convinced mutiny can do it. And, and you, because mutiny is inherent in the solution, you're going, okay, I, I need mutiny. It's, it's, it's part of what I would need to, to action this. So those playbook uh, stories can be phenomenal. There's also uh, what we would call, these are again, less common, but uh, buying board stories. So this would be like a multi-perspective, often in B2B, you've got a whole bunch of people with a whole bunch of considerations all Committee, wanting, yeah. you know, to, yeah. And, and so one way to come at that is to kind of do this cross-section type of story. It's tough to execute because there's a lot of different perspectives and you want to keep that narrative, you know, cohesive and, and concise. So sometimes things like layout or structure will change, but these types of board, you know, buying board stories is where you might sample multiple perspectives, bring them together to kind of make a case for, for the product and, and that sort of thing. So there are all that to say, I mean, if you're listening to this, the, the takeaway here is you don't have to tell boilerplate, just problem solution results. You can be very intentional about what you want this story to do for you, how you want to appeal to different people, what aspect of your offering or the relationship, you know, you, you want to highlight. Um, and, and there are many ways to, to come at that. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic information. I think now I'm thinking back to our case studies and our goals, and I think we need to take a minute, look at things again and make sure we got a little bit of something else. But I think too, that it seems like there are various types of stories that would fit into various points in the buyer's journey. Right. And mm -hmm. Just to say, we have three case exactly. studies. Here and, you and go, sales. Yeah, that's why it's so important. You know, especially it doesn't really matter what stage you're at. For some companies, early stage, you're thinking we don't have a huge client base. We can't really pick and choose. Okay, yes, you probably want to start by just starting to get a story together, get get something out there. But as your company matures, you know, when we look at, you know, we we've served over 350 different clients over the years, and when I isolate wow. the top one percent of that client base. And I look at what is it that they did differently that enabled them to do everything from produce at scale to drive more ROI, to get approval, to all of this. You know, it, we, we have a, a piece we've put together about this that you can share in the show notes and people can dig into. But what it really comes down to is they build infrastructure as a pro, they don't treat these like an asset, they treat them like a program. They, they do a, a multi-team approach. There are processes and systems that inform strategy at the beginning. What types of stories do we need, whether it's for this quarter or for this year? There's systems in place for who is making the ask, how and when. There's systems in place for what happens after that point to make sure the right expectation is set so stories don't die on the table later on. And then they're really intentional about where are we going to use this thing? Where are we going to deploy it? Yeah. And I would say in the early stages of our company, especially, we learned from them. It, it was by seeing what the most successful were doing that we went, ah, we could be enabling mm -hmm. this. We could, we could be making this easier, right? And we've had seven plus years to just look at this set of problems and go, okay, that even now we're still seeing and discovering new ways of coming at it. But, but it's kind of like what you said earlier. For me, when I started, it was like my mentality was around oh, stories, a story, and how hard could it be? And now, seven years later, I'm still learning things about where and how no, it's good. and use these. Yeah, no, it's good. And I think, too, like we've seen some of our clients even roll webinars into that program, yeah. right? So they'll bring the client on, you know, a webinar, or they'll shoot a segment with them and then weave it into a webinar 
then it yeah. you know builds into their lead gen efforts and things like that too. So that's really cool. Um, yeah. Awesome. So obviously stats are a huge part of you know you you want to show X percent improvement in Y area, um, but what do you do when the client either won't share them or uh, maybe doesn't have them? Yeah, this is a, a really, really common problem. I think to take it a step back even further, how do we maximize our odds of getting stats in the first place? So let's start there because a lot of people think, oh, my clients have no stats. And then when you really impact, it's like yeah, you're not making it easy for them to, to have stats. So I think the first thing is we mentioned earlier, if you want to get metrics in your story, there's a handful of things that that you can be doing to empower that. Number one, look at your normal cadence of comms with clients and ask yourself honestly, do we make talking about KPIs normal? Like, is this part of our regular dialogue? Because if it's not, that's something you can start changing today. How can we put some accountability and ownership across talking about outcomes and reminding customers of why they came in and how we're tracking against that? The second thing is, you know, you can seed. Again, this is why we we try to work with clients to seed a little bit ahead of the call. These are the types of things we'd love for you to come prepared with. That gives you some foresight. If they come back and say, I have none of that, at least you can be intentional about either, number one, finding a way to surface metrics, which I'll talk about in a second, or number two, steering the, the interview in another direction. So, Let's say, okay, the, the client is reticent to share. They're, they, they're not, you know, they're thinking, we don't want to share metrics. What are your options? How do you come at that? We kind of approach it in a staged approach. The first thing is, okay, we do want to try wherever possible to get a metric. You can tell amazing stories without metrics, but where we can get when we want one. So the first thing we'll do when someone says, I don't want to share a metric, we want to understand what's motivating the no. Is it that they don't know their numbers or is it that they won't share their numbers? Because the approach is very different. If they don't know them, then we can be proactive about trying to help them either discover those or discover a a, a proxy they're comfortable with. We can work with them to do some math, some estimation that they're comfortable putting their name behind. If they won't share their numbers, our options are similar but different. We, we may start with them by saying, is there a way we can treat the number that feels less sensitive to you? Instead of saying this specific financial metric, could we give a range? Could we give a percentage? Could we extrapolate? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a way, you know, in an extreme case, um, could we, this is going to sound bonkers. I know we might talk about anonymous later, but could we anonymize the story in favor of preserving the metric and going really deep? into the methodology. Sometimes that trade-off is is worth it. Um, But in the absence of metrics, let's say no matter what you do, a metric's not going to show up. You you, you just know, okay, they're not tracking or they're not comfortable. What can you do to tell a really great story? Again, that comes back down to your goals. I think we have to remember that metrics get the clicks. They might get the eyeballs, but purchase decisions aren't just made by metrics. When I consider who I want to hire as an agency, yes, my concern is can they get results? But my other concerns are things like, how do they communicate? Do they have experience in my space? How do they think through problems? You know, Have they helped the company go public or become a unicorn? Those have no metrics associated, but they sound pretty darn good for someone who has that yeah. same aspirational goal. So you look in that case for more qualitative 
you know, criteria people evaluate you on or a more qualitative kind of outcomes they might be looking for. Interesting. I never thought about the let's intentionally anonymize this if it makes her, you know, that we can get it done. Right. Which, wow, that's a great idea. Yeah. Um, it's, no, please go ahead. Yeah. It, 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 like I say, it's rare, um, but, but I have seen situations where, again, the trade off is worth it. And what I mean by that is, let's say you have achieved like a, a really great outcome for someone that's really metrics driven. And their, their concern is sensitivity. Well, sometimes anonymity is a gift because it, if they know they're not going to be named, well, now the gloves are really off. You can still preserve quotes from them in the story because you can attribute them a little bit differently. But when a client knows they're going to be anonymous and knows that things like their strategy or, or whatever won't be attributed back to them, won't be exposed, sometimes that grants you the ability to go really, really deep in terms of metrics, in terms of methodology, in terms of strategy, sometimes the trade-off is there where you can really put what you did and your thinking and your strategy on display. And that, that trade-off, you know, handled well, yes, you lose the logo, but you can still tell a really compelling uh, and believable story. Um, the trade-off is the detail. And, and sometimes that's a trade-off worth making. Interesting. Like, I think if we just peel into this, like we have a lot of cybersecurity companies that yeah. are clients of ours and any, you know, CISO or, or any, uh, you know, senior mature IT person is not going to likely disclose what tool they're using and paint a target on their back. And so you end up with, you know, a lot of uh, cybersecurity solutions providers or companies that find that we just can't get past the anonymous thing. And so there's kind of this, like um, kind of giving up and going, well, it's just not possible. But I like that idea that maybe you can lean into it. And maybe you could even say at the beginning, um, you know, as you know, uh, most organizations are not going to disclose who they're using for X, Y, and Z. However, we, we have an organization would like to tell a story and they're going to remain anonymous for obvious reasons and just yeah. lean into it. Totally. So what I love that this naturally went here because one client that, that we work, we, we do a lot of work for cybersecurity and one of our clients in this space, we've done over 80 stories. They're a cybersecurity company and they have over at this point, I think we may even be past 100 case studies. Um, and it's exactly what you're saying. When the expectation in the space is that of anonymity, it's no longer a hindrance. Because now you're, you're on an even playing field. If I, as a lead, I'm going, I would never go on the record. I'm okay with someone else not going on the record. And we do exactly actually what you described. We, we lead in the story by saying that, you know, the, the names and, and roles and, uh, of this story have been anonymized by request. Um, mm -hmm. and, and still people relate to that, right? They, they understand it. They, people, you know, we, we try, we, we tend to, treat markets like these just, you know, uh, totally mindless beings who have, you know, no, no real thought process behind the way they consume content, but people get it. They understand. And if, and yeah. if I'm, you know, the CEO of Walmart or whatever it might be, I know we've got policies internally against name stores and going on the record in that way. 
So for, for me to see that you've called out that a major retailer, an international retailer, didn't want to put their name to, well, well okay, I, I can live with that. I get it. And that doesn't need to undermine the credibility of the story. Yeah, oh, I think that makes perfect sense. And I think, too, um, you're seeing clients, it's not just cybersecurity. Like a lot are just simply not willing to to go there just because they don't, you know, there's sensitive information, especially if metrics are shared. But if you can take those shackles off, just lean into it and, you know, maybe have a good result. Uh, as, Definitely. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about video versus written. So is obviously it's a do both, but video is a challenge. So, you know, not everybody's going to get a sit down opportunity. How do you guys approach video with with prospects? Yeah, for, people for, are really uh, polarized on this topic. There, there are people that will tell you, don't even bother with written. Nobody reads these days. A video is going to carry the whole story. And it's, you know, if you put anything written together, it's it's just going to get ignored. And so we kind of smile along with that. And then we look at our clients who have like deployed, you know, they'll, they'll track influenced uh, ARR against a handful of stories we've done. And it's like in the millions So like, yeah, no, people are actually consuming this. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have people that just don't invest in video because like you say, it's more expensive or it's more inconvenient or they block their own shot and say, oh, clients will never get in front of a camera. That's just not who they are. So I think number one, a shift in mentality benefits everybody here. Like video is an amazing medium and sometimes it's the best. No other medium is going to give you the uh, body language, the voice and tone. They're literally you know, sitting or standing there advocating for you. And so whenever video is a possibility, absolutely, I, I recommend chasing it. Um, but at the same time, we need to recognize video's got its own limitations. Uh, oftentimes, mm -hmm. a one sheet in a cold sale scenario, if a video shows up in your inbox from a company you've never heard of, that is for some people an instant red flag, but I'm not going to click that. There's some kind of weird tracking. They're going to see I open it, whatever it might be. A yeah. one sheet might do you yeah. better. So when we talk about operationalizing video uh, and okay, knowing that the bar is a little bit higher or perceived, the perceived friction is a little bit higher. How do we come at that? I think the first thing I'd say is we are living in the video era. It's difficult at this, you know, it's, it's more rare at this point for someone to really be against getting on camera in, in some way. They may be nervous about it, but, most people have taken a Zoom call or they've, they've been part of these different things. And, and, and so, you know, people are more comfortable with, with video than ever. I think when you're pitching video, you want to make sure, uh, pitching involvement in video, you want to make sure, go out of your way to make sure that you, they feel a sense of comfort and a sense of control. Mm -hmm. A sense of control is letting them know, you know, you're going to have an opportunity to review, make sure you're comfortable with how you're presented. You know, we, we advise that with every format we do, but video, it's, it's just as important. And then comfort, you build comfort by demonstrating that there's a thought process and you've thought of ways to make them comfortable. So for us, that's little things like letting them know there's going to be a producer there who, you know, is there to make you look and sound your best and ensure you come across really well. Um, for, mm -hmm. for live events, uh, for example, it's about creating an environment, we, small little things that you would think wouldn't matter, like charging stations or Wi-Fi or some refreshments, or again, the presence of a producer. All of these are little things that help put people at ease. 
I think the other thing is that is where it is so critical to have someone experienced doing the interview itself. Because interviewers don't just serve the role of surfacing the story. They also serve the role of calming nerves, building rapport, mm. and bringing you know the, the best out of that person. And so where a producer is kind of there to help them feel comfortable with the lighting and framing and setup and make them feel really confident and comfortable, the interviewer is there to, again, put them at ease and get that information out of them. And a simple tactic for this that we try to get our team to use and that you know anyone listening can try, so simple, epic encouragement. When someone's on camera or in any interview, they are thinking to themselves, am I giving you what you need? Are my responses good? Am I telling a good story? Is this going well? And so for an interviewer, one of the best things you can do is these small bits of epic encouragement. That's a really great response. Or, oh, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad I get to talk to you about this. You really know your stuff. It has to be genuine. But these kinds of little comments, like that's a fascinating answer, or that's really interesting. Tell me more. These are little tiny things that on their own don't seem like much, but make a huge difference. If you're making someone feel actively like they're crushing it in the interview, they start to live up to that expectation. And so that's a really simple thing that I think we've learned over time is a little bit of epic encouragement along the way, little jabs of just like, that's really great. You really know this. What a good response. I'd love to hear you say more, you know, things like that. That goes a long way to in the moment, making your video come out you know, as, as strong as possible. I think I could have given you some more epic encouragement here today, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I'll say that's awesome. It was an excellent response. I'll try and put it into <laughs> practice right now. That's good. Yeah. I, I know your, your team even will send a, a light, uh, lighting and microphone to the prospect, uh, the, the client that they can just keep to make them look good on camera. Yeah. Um, which I think is really, you know, I think that's awesome. I think it, it shows them that you want the outcome to be good for them and for you. Yeah. Right. I, I the, mean, the, the, the other piece best. of it is when they feel prepared, right? And, and that's why I say, especially for video, that's where seating is important and, and, and kind of giving them a sense of what might be talked about, making them feel like I've got the right gear for the job. We will also send in advance kind of a, a little bit of like a setup sort of one sheet where it's like, here's how to, you know, how to make sure your environment is, is looking good. And don't worry too much if you're not nailing it, our producer's going to be there to help you, but here's some, some guidelines mm -hmm. and instructions and all those little things add up to just better video. And, and I think the thing, especially with remote video that you have to acknowledge, and it's one of the toughest things about making this part of our offering is you are walking into an uncontrolled environment. And so we, you know, with an on-location shoot, you have so much control over seating, lighting, framing, environment, all of it. So you're guaranteed an epic outcome if you do your job right. With remote video, that's why we send that stuff because we want good lighting. We want good framing. That's why mm -hmm. at the beginning of the call, we might ask them to adjust their space a little bit or gently ask them to reposition or move. And then beyond that, I mean, you have to have a team that can block and tackle because we've had people that had dogs with collars rattling in the background. We've had people's heaters come on halfway through and now you're getting a hum in the audio. We've had people have uh, you know, a piece of hair that keeps falling in. You have to know how to gently respond to, hey, could you just brush that aside? And it all sounds yeah. so simple until you try to do it. And, and then you yeah. realize like there really is 
in art to capturing, you know, all of that will still try to make sure sound bites are succinct and good for video, all that stuff, right? So there's a lot of considerations, um, but there's a ton you can do to make people feel comfortable, confident, like they're crushing it, um, prepared, all of that stuff. No, and your team does, I've been impressed with everything they've done for us, That the way that that has pulled off, even though somebody's in their living room, it still looks great. And yeah. I think too, like, you know, as we get into the UGC age or like user-generated user content, mm -hmm. um, are you seeing companies like maybe even lean in a little bit to just asking the customer to grab their phone and just shoot a little? I mean, we see that in e-commerce and yeah. things like that, but what about B2B? I think so much comes down to there are trade-offs with everything. So it's, I think it's becoming more acceptable to have this kind of raw self-shot aesthetic. And, and I think that, it, you know, a lot of brands have been reticent to embrace that, but you are starting to see, especially with like TikTok and things like that, it, it becoming to some degree less about the polish. But the, the big trade-off is story. So mm. you can definitely like in e-commerce, the stakes are not that high because if I'm doing a product review and basically saying I love the product or whatever, it's pretty easy for, for me as an individual to sort of give you something close to what you need. The tricky thing is the trade-off you make when you go asynchronous versus live interview is with asynchronous, you get what you get and you don't get upset. And if that person is well-spoken and comes with details mm -hmm. and can relay their emotions and can, you know, follow a, a good narrative and, and respond well to the prompts you've given them, you might get something amazing, right? I, I'm not going to sit here and go, no, ours is the only way to come at it. I mean, we've, we've looked at asynchronous, but like you legitimately can get something really good. But more often than not, if that person anything can go wrong when you're not intervening. If their lighting and framing is weird, okay, the raw aesthetic is fine. People, what we've learned the hard way is people can live with as a viewer, maybe not the perfect like display, but if that audio is bad, it's mm. over. They're not watching. <laughs> They're not continuing. Um, the other thing is you're kind of at the mercy of what they have to say and how they say it. If they give you a big run, you know, run on sentence for five minutes, that's going to be really hard to edit um, because yes, you want raw and real, but nobody's sitting through that. Nobody is, is, mm -hmm. is watching that. Right. So I think there, there's really great options and opportunities. I think asynchronous is wonderful for scale. I think if all you want is like a testimonial soundbite, like that whole, it's really great. We stand behind it. Asynchronous is probably the cheaper, more scalable way to go. But if your goal is to support like a focused narrative and you want to get the gold out of the, like you don't want to leave that up to chance, that's where the live interview, I think, still has a, a big role to play. So they're both great solutions. It just depends on your goals, the type of footage you're, you're after, yeah. um, and, and ultimately the, the person, you know, giving you the content. Yeah, and you don't have to go back to them and say we got to redo this, and you know, yeah, it, it could end up in a wheel. There's that no just mulligans goes around, and around it. Yeah, no, yeah, that is, <laughs> especially you, if they're you busy, really, right? Unless you're on amazing terms with them, or you're ready to incentivize them to go do it again, what you yeah. get, what you get, and you don't get upset. It's what's there to work yeah. with is there to work with. Yeah, no, it's a good point. What what do you see in terms of the optimal length 
for a case study video, like your prototypical case study video, uh, what, minute and a half, two minutes, three minutes? Yeah, I, I think there's there's two primary and and maybe three cuts, I think, serve most of the functions you'll need. The first is like if you are doing ads or you're you're making a push, you know, in an ad campaign, a single statement like 10 second video is probably, you know, it's worth testing against longer variations if you've got a really great statement or hook, because again, that gives you the ability to kind of steer attention elsewhere. We, by default, always give clients kind of a 30 second-ish variant, which we call kind of the highlight. So it's a little longer than that mm-hmm. tech, 10 seconds, but we see that play nicely on social and uh, embedded, you know, within pieces and that kind of thing. And then for us, um, we kind of, there, there's no you know, hard-handed limit, but we kind of see attention start to dwindle after the kind of 233 minute mark, unless you're really like doing some fantastic editing and really, you know, making it compelling. It's hard to hold attention beyond that point. It's also, you know, the other side of it is what's the edit like? Because 230 of just a talking head is not that compelling to watch. You want to have transitions. You want to ideally have, you know, whether it's animations or stock footage or B-roll or whatever's available to you. You want to try to, even with remote video, vary it up a bit so that my, you know, I'm, I'm entertained, I'm engaged. There, there's something different for me to, to, to look at. So even when you're pressing into those longer versions, two minute, 30, three minute beyond, you know, the editing, the importance of great editing just continues to increase. I think there's some interesting emerging stuff happening. So for example, what we're starting to see people play with, I wouldn't say it's you know standard or perfected by any means, but we're starting to see people produce video that, that kind of has the ability to jump straight to the question you have or the content you want or the role that you relate to. So there's some interesting technical mm-hmm. solutions coming up where you can have these like 10 minute videos but it's this almost choose your own adventure type of experience where based on what you want to learn next, it takes you to different spots in the video. And I think that's cool. I'm curious to, to play around with it. Um, but yeah, I, we we generally, from our bias perspective, from what we see with our clients, we tend to see attention drop like a stone once you're past that you know three minute mark. There's nothing magic about that, but unless it's a really, really well done video, keeping it a little tighter is going to play to your benefit for sure. Yeah. And, and we've actually taken our videos that uh, your team did for us and taken the highlights piece and used that as a LinkedIn ad creative yeah. and then actually split it up uh, into even the highlights piece. We split up into, like you said, the 10 second quick hit, quick hits. Yeah. And the, the click through rate is very, very good. Like, and especially the ones that are like, you know, results based, right? We, it used to be like this. Now it's like this, and then you know, click through, and that's actually been some of our best performing uh, LinkedIn ad creative uh, for us so far. So there's, you can repurpose it for those those types of campaigns as well. Oh, um, awesome. This has been great, Joel. I mean, we want to get to a couple other things that we had on on the docket for you here. Yeah. Uh, let's talk internal approval processes. <laughs> Trying to get this thing okayed to go out you might your participant might be all over it but their legal team their management their you know whatever how do you guys any tips for navigating that yeah this is another place where um 
the the greatest kind of measures you can take are proactive ones early on. Um, if you're trying to solve this retroactively at the end, you've kind of put yourself in a tougher situation. So there's what you can do today, and then there's what you should engineer for the future. And what you want to arrive at in the end um, are most, when again, looking at that top 1%, what do they do differently in terms of approvals that makes this easier for them? I think number one, we've seen them take kind of a, um, especially in the enterprise, escalating approach to the ask in the first place. So for initial buy-in, they don't just dump this all on a client's head with like a giant email with a whole bunch of, you know, will you do this? Will you do that? Um, they stage the ask. And normally the first email or the first call might be just to gauge overall interest. If the stars aligned, would this be something you would be open to participating in? Um, something every company can do and start doing today to improve their approval rates is you need some means of empowering your point of contact to sell this internally and make people aware of what's going on. One of the simplest ways you can do that is give them a pitch packet. Give them like a one sheet that basically says, this is the process, this is what's covered, this is what we're angling for, and this is where it might be used. And also make sure to detail you have you know, final say in, in, in what goes live mm -hmm. and, and uh, it's going to be convenient. And so arming your point of contact, because what people don't realize is that often in B2B especially, they're using up some of their internal capital for you. They're going to bat. They, yeah. They've got some equity they've built up internally. They're putting their neck out for you. The easier you can make that for them to say, hey, PR, hey, legal, I'd like to take part in this. Here is a quick packet outlining you know, what they're hoping to do and how it might be used in the types mm -hmm. we might be asked and, and so on and so forth. That makes it easier for them to out because sometimes you hear that, oh, it's not going to get approved. They're not even asking. They just don't want to expend that capital to, to try to do it. It's so overwhelming for them. They, they don't do it. Um, yeah. There's a really awesome tie into webinars, actually. Something we've learned over time is it can, especially in sensitive spaces, it can be easier to get your client on a stage than in an interview. It can be easier to get them to agree to do a webinar where they are teaching and naturally dovetail some kind of story or endorsement into that than to lead with a case study. And so we will see again this idea of um, escalating commitment, looking for small ways they've already put their hand up. So have they done an NPS score survey? Have they done a customer feedback survey? Have they done whatever that helps identify who might be willing to take mm -hmm. part. And then if you're hearing a no on the case study, go to a webinar, go, go get them on a stage, find some way that they can teach it. And that can be another route to getting this kind of peer proof. Um, another tactic that can prove effective or something at least to evaluate is who is making the ask, because that can be as important as how you ask. And so who's making the ask? It should be someone who falls into one of two categories or both. Either who is the most familiar to the customer, so who do they know, uh, or who is most authoritative. So if you have a well-known C-suite person in the company, maybe they've got a bridge to someone at the C-suite in that other company. Clout actually can matter. If I know the request is coming from a high up, that might motivate me a little more as you know, legal or PR or the point of contact to, to, to operationalize that or both. It, the ideal is if you have someone authoritative and familiar, that is your best person to position the ask and, and continue mm -hmm. it on. Um, I'll close out this thought by saying 
one of the reasons that these stories die on the table or don't get approved, two of the reasons, one is you move too slowly. So the priority shift, the slips down the, the, the uh, priority list for your customer and they just ghost because they get distracted. Um, the, the second reason, uh, now, of course, I'm going to lose my train of thought on the second reason. So the first is it can slip down the priorities. Uh, the second reason is because you made them, I alluded to this earlier, you made them look like an idiot. Um, mm -hmm. if, if you have not been careful about the, the line you walk when especially presenting the challenge they were facing, that is by you. Everyone thinks it's the results that are contentious and sure they can be, but it's often what kills these things is the way you framed it in the challenge. If you made them look like a damsel or a dude in distress or some hapless idiot that you saved, you've made, you've made it really hard on yourself yeah. to get approval. Yeah. Oh, that's man. Yeah. That's so helpful. I think, you know, we've seen the, the uh, cadence of things be really important, like the speed from, mm -hmm. you know, getting it done recorded and then getting it approved uh, is so key. Yeah. Uh, Cause you know, time is the enemy on these things. It seems like so. Well, Joel, this has been fantastic. I mean, one of the things I always like to ask people is what questions we should have asked you that we didn't ask. Any <laughs> uh, thoughts there? Um, I think one that's like a hot button topic for everybody in in, in to some degree is like, what? How's AI going to change this? Everyone's kind of wondering, like, for for everything these days, is you know, how's AI going to change this? And I think, um. We've played around and, and we've tried things out. I, I think there are huge opportunities in the near term for repurposing. I think there's lots of ways to leverage AI to, to take something that's human created and then iterate on it. But the danger right now for the state of things is these are high stakes assets because reputations and sensitive data right. and so on are involved. So we're not, you know, I, I think we're still pretty far from generating something truly strategic and, and meaningful in a way that is safe, especially when you consider like training models and that kind of thing. I think the other question um, is, you know, what, how should we measure the ROI of these things? You know, how do we know it's mm -hmm. working? Um, and it can be slippery. People go, well, you know, what's the ROI of a case study? How do you pin that down? And I just want to leave some ideas because so much depends on how you leverage it, but some things to think about. Can you benchmark your before and after in terms of sales cycle? Is, are you shortening your sales cycles? Can you benchmark your before and after in sales confidence? How confident are they that they're going to close a particular type of deal? Can you look at if you're doing cold outreach, positive response rates? You know, Is your response rate higher when you mention a case study or share one? Or do you get more responses when you, when you name drop or, or share these things? That's another way to look. You can look at um, conversion rates or... Uh, conversions to demo or inquiry on remarketing, especially. We've had clients see great success in terms of uh, when someone's expressed an interest by visiting certain content on the site, instead of an ad that takes them to a landing page, push to a story and benchmark that. How does that compare to some of the other campaigns you're, you're, you're running? Um, all of these, you know, influenced uh, MRRAR, like looking at how often do they interact with the case study in the process and different CRMs will make that easy for you. Um, for ad campaigns, again, benchmarking how do our how does this LinkedIn creative perform against other LinkedIn creative compared to the things you're already doing, kind of see how that works. So that's a question I get a lot that you know people they believe in case studies, maybe their boss doesn't. It's like, how do I how do I prove the juices with the squeeze? And those yeah. are some things you can think about. Yeah, because especially if you're outsourcing, I mean it's not free. 
activity, right? There's some effort, there's some investment involved sure. and you have to, yeah, no, I like it. So Joel, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, I, I think number one, casestudybuddy.com, we have a blog where there are tons of kind of pieces on how we come at this, how you can come at this. There's a lot you can learn there. We have a newsletter um, that we share ideas and tips and resources and examples fairly often. So that's a pretty low pressure way to to check things out. If you don't know if we're a good fit for you, we can you can also contact us through there. And for me personally, um, you know, on LinkedIn, I don't always respond quickly. I do always respond. So always happy to jam on ideas and and uh, chat there. And then uh, Twitter, you know, I, I'm not all all business all the time. We're coming into hockey season, so you know, I will oh boy. vent my inevitable frustration with the Calgary <laughs> Flames at some point. But I'm happy to connect there as well. Awesome. Well, this has been fantastic. And I think our clients and, and listeners are going to find it really interesting too, and, and uh, hopefully have some success in how they go to market with their case studies. So thanks very much. That's a wrap for the pod. And we appreciate everybody being on today. We'll talk to you soon. Cheers.